Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, a former CIA agent tells us what we can expect from the Ukrainians as they fight the Russian invasion. Should the United States encourage the overt assassination of Vladimir Putin? Well, one congressman thinks so, but what would the consequences be? We'll hear from top brass. The former president is accused of some very serious crimes, including conspiracy to defraud the United States. But will there be formal charges against him? Plus, a state leader now accused of inappropriate conduct. But first, this past week, the president gave his first State of the Union address. He's been in office for a year and had the address to the joint session of Congress on Tuesday night. And joining us now on the Northwest Newsline is Democratic Representative Derek Kilmer of Washington State. First off, what are your thoughts on the State of the Union and the message the president had? I think it was a really important message. You know, listen, over the past year, we've seen some substantial progress in getting our economy up off the ground and getting a handle on COVID and getting our kids back to school. But I I think you heard the president say, even though things are heading in the right direction, we know there's more work to do. And I, I think it's important that the president laid out a plan to create jobs and build an economy that works better for people. He had specific strategies to strengthen our supply chains and ensure that we make things here in America, rather than having them made someplace else. And I I also think it was important that he put forward some specific ideas to reduce costs for American families, everything from healthcare and housing to childcare and everyday goods, just so folks aren't feeling so squeezed. And I I think those are ideas that Democrats and Republicans, and frankly, all Americans should be able to rally around. Now, much of what the president talked about was stuff that had already been accomplished and then before transitioning to stuff he wants to do in in various uh, items on his agenda. But the big question, though, is how do you pay for things like expanded child care, you know, the child tax credit, getting that expanded, things of that nature? That's all got to go through Congress, and that's a, a tough road to hoe at the moment. Well, doing anything in Congress can present challenges, but I, I think you heard the president make a real case for lowering costs for American families, in part by making more things in America and by reducing some of the costs of everyday expenses. And as you heard him say, making sure that it's paid for and paid for without asking anybody who makes under $400,000 a year to pay a penny more in taxes. I think that's something that the folks I represent are largely supportive of. Um, they want to see, listen, I've, I've talked to so many working parents and particularly working moms who just felt sidelined in this economy because they don't have affordable, accessible childcare. I've talked to far too many of my constituents who've had to make awful choices because they've not had affordable health care and affordable prescription drugs. These are real strategies that could make a real difference for the folks I represent and do so in a way, as you heard the president say, that would actually lower our deficit and grow our economy. So aside from manufacturing in America, which obviously has huge economic benefits as opposed to uh, the global trade issues with the supply chain that the president had mentioned. How does the federal government, the Congress, and the White House help lower the costs of these everyday items that Americans are feeling the pinch on? Let's look at one of the areas where my office certainly hears from a lot of people, and that is the cost of prescription drugs, including the cost of insulin. You know, the House has already passed legislation that would allow Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, that would put a cap on how much seniors pay over the course of a year, and that would have put a cap of $35 on the price of insulin. That would have a significant positive impact on the bottom lines of the families that I represent. You know, in some instances could literally mean the difference between life and death. You know, that is one example of where the federal government can use its purchasing power under Medicare. Not only does that save costs for American families, it saves a boatload of money for American taxpayers as well. To foreign policy, which is what the president focused on early on with the Russian invasion 
invasion of Ukraine. What were your thoughts there? Did the president strike the right tone? I think he did. The focus of his remarks were making clear that Vladimir Putin and the Russians have taken illegal and reckless actions by invading Ukraine, but also, I think, really emphasizing the degree to which those actions have united the West. Again, I've talked to so many folks from my district about this, including a large Ukrainian population in the district I represent. I think the uniting words that you heard from the president today really will resonate with my constituents who have stood in awe in seeing the Ukrainian people fight for their sovereignty. But he again reiterated that the United States will not be sending troops uh, into Ukraine to turn back the Russian invasion. NATO will not be sending troops into Ukraine to turn back the Russian invasion. Obviously, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. But at what point does, to use a borrowed cliche, the rubber meet the road? You, you can only do so much with economic sanctions. And as Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, said, sanctions don't do us any good if we're invaded in an occupied state. At what point does NATO, the U.S., and the world send troops in to send the Russians back? Well, I think the president was clear in saying that he doesn't intend to put boots on the ground of American soldiers in, into Ukraine. I think any time uh, a president or a country has to make a decision in that regard, it's a really important to be able to answer a few questions. And I think President Biden speaks with some experience on this subject. And those questions are things like, what's your exit strategy? And what does success look like? And I think in a situation like this, the potential for a large conflict with Americans fighting Russians in Europe is not is neither something that the American people are eager to see, nor is the administration willing to commit. Having said that, I think what the president has said is we've got to do all we can to try to stop Russian aggression by making them feel it economically, by mobilizing the world against the actions of Russia and isolating them as a consequence of their illegal and destabilizing actions. Uh, beyond that, I think it's clear that as part of the military assistance that the United States is providing um, and that, that NATO is providing, we want to ensure that the Ukrainians uh, have the assistance that they need to try to fight for their, for their sovereignty. We're also forward deploying resources to Eastern Europe to protect our NATO allies to make sure that Putin doesn't take things a step further in a way that could end up in a larger scale conflict. What can Congress do on that front? I think it's quite likely that you may see a resolution of support for Ukraine. On top of that, Congress has already provided authorization for the administration to take some of the actions that it's currently taking against the Russian government, against Putin, and uh, against the government's leadership. Going back to the speech, was there anything that you wanted the president to say or anything that you wanted him to address that you didn't hear in the State of the Union? I actually think he covered a lot of really important topics. And I, I'm actually grateful that he ended by talking about some of the issues that unite our country, you know, beating back the opioid crisis, taking on the mental health crisis. You know, I, I, I have to tell you, I, I got asked by one of our local papers, what surprised you most in your time in office? And I gave him a very honest answer, and it was how much mental health comes up in this job. So many families have grappled with mental health issues even before the pandemic, and all of those issues have been exacerbated by the pandemic. That's not a red issue or a blue issue. That's just an American issue. And having Democrats and Republicans unite in trying to address those challenges, I think, is really important. You know, I represent a district that has more military veterans than nearly anybody in Congress. And making sure that if you serve this country, we have your back. Again, I don't look at that as a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. That is an American issue, that we want to make sure that in the land of the free and the home of the brave, every brave service member has a home and that it's not under 
a highway overpass, that our veterans are getting the health care and the benefits that they have earned, that if you fought for your country overseas, you don't have to fight for a job when you come back. Again, I think those are issues that unite our country, that unite Democrats and Republicans. I was pleased to hear the president call on Congress to come together, to send bills to his desk, uh, to take action on each of those items. You were in the chamber during the speech. How united was the Congress, at least for the people who were in attendance? Well, you know, I've, I've been to a few of these. And there's always uh, a handful of things where everybody's on their feet. And there's always a handful of issues where about half the chamber's on their feet and the other half isn't. But I think you did see Democrats and Republicans united in demonstrating that democracy prevails over autocracy and saying that we're going to stand up for democracy against Russian aggression. Uh, You saw Democrats and Republicans united saying that we've got to grow our economy and make sure that we're lowering costs for American families. You saw Democrats and Republicans united around some of these issues that I just mentioned, beating back the opioid crisis and ending cancer as we know it, taking on mental health care and and supporting our veterans. Uh, You know, there are a number of issues, and I think sometimes the issues that divide us get amplified. They get amplified on social media or they get amplified on cable news. But the reality is there are some things that Democrats and Republicans agree on. And my hope and I think the expectation of the American people is that Congress and this administration make progress on those issues. What are those issues? Well, I just mentioned a good chunk of them. This week, we're going to take up a bill focused on the subject that the president spoke to with regard to burn pits and the pain that veterans are facing as a consequence of exposure to toxic chemicals through burn pits. That is something I have heard from constituents. I have talked to people who are literally dying from cancer because they fought for our country and they were exposed to these chemicals. And I think it's important that the United States government says, you're not alone. We're going to have your back. We're going to make sure that you're getting the care and the benefits that you need and that your family deserves. And that's something that I think we're going to pass from the House. And finally, there were two things that stuck in my mind from the speech that the president said that seemed to be sort of a a way of reaching across the aisle, as it were. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. And then his calls to secure the border. Obviously, those are big wedge issues, or at least have been in the last few years. What's your reaction to that and and, and how uh, members in Congress are likely to react? Well, I think you saw uh, in both instances unity between Democrats and Republicans uh, on both of those issues. You know, there's an understanding we can both work to make sure that we have a justice system that's fairer, that we have a criminal uh, justice system uh, that is is fairer, that we're reforming law enforcement, but also making sure that it has the resources it needs to keep our communities safe, that it does take funding. And in fact, I've supported legislation, the American Rescue Plan, that provides some extra help to cities and counties uh, and tribal governments so that even in the midst of the pandemic, where they're feeling the squeeze, that there are resources that they can continue to hire up uh, law enforcement officers. You're seeing that in a lot of the communities that I represent, including in Pierce County and in Tacoma, where they're offering bonuses to try to staff up and hire more police. Obviously, there are some voices calling for it, but the vast majority of people that I talk to agree with what the president said, that we shouldn't be talking about dismantling or defunding police departments. We should be talking about making sure that they have resources and training so that they're providing safety to our communities in a way that is fair to everybody concerned. With regard to immigration policy, I think 
think this is, again, one of those areas where Democrats and Republicans ought to be able to come together, because the reality is there is agreement on the vast majority of the issues related to immigration. Most Democrats and Republicans believe that we want to fix our legal immigration system so we have less people coming here without appropriate documentation, so that we're, as you heard the president talk about, making sure that there's more immigration judges at the border, so that if there's someone who has a legitimate claim to asylum, that they're able to receive it, but so that we don't see the sort of crises at the border that we saw uh, in past year. Fixing the legal immigration system so that those industries that are dependent on immigrant labor, including in our state, the agricultural industry, that they're able to have that labor, but that it's above board and that you don't have workers that are playing by the rules having to compete against workers that are not playing by the rules. And while we're at it, the bipartisan immigration proposal that I supported says, let's actually jack up some of the fees associated with high-skilled immigrant visas and plow those dollars into providing science, technology, engineering, and math education for American kids so that over the medium term and over the long term, more and more of those jobs can be filled by our kids, not by folks having to come from someplace else. These are issues where there's broad agreement by Democrats and Republicans. And by the way, you even saw broad agreement on something that I'm very supportive, and that's a pathway to citizenship for DREAMers. I sat in Tacoma at Tacoma Community House with a group of young people who were brought here by no choice of their own, by no fault of their own. In some instances, were toddlers when they came over. And now they're in their teens or their 20s. They're Americans in every way except on paper. And many of them live in fear of deportation. And so providing that pathway to citizenship, I think, is something that not every Democrat and Republican agrees to. But I think the vast majority, not just of Congress, but of the American people, believe that's the right thing to do. So these are things, again, that I think, while it's tempting to focus on the things that there is disagreement on and that divide us, I think there are things things that Democrats and Republicans can agree on, that we can unite around, and that we can move forward on behalf of the American people. All right, Congressman Derek Kilmer, thank you so much for your time. You got it. Now, we reached out to each Republican member of Washington's congressional delegation, offering them a spot on this program to share their thoughts about the State of the Union. None of them got back to us. When we come back, the former president now stands accused of conspiracy to defraud the United States. When the Northwest Politicast continues... After this, welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela with the January 6th committee in the U.S. House of Representatives. Well, they are not pulling back any punches. They are accusing the former president, Donald Trump, of several crimes, including conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstruction of an official proceeding. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And now this is really unprecedented territory. Now, the committee can't indict him, but they can certainly accuse him, as they have done, of some very serious crimes. Yeah. And none of this probably would have come come out if it weren't for the fact that John Eastman, one of his attorneys, is refusing to hand over documents related to the January 6th investigation. So they went to court. And in order to prove that John Eastman, who was the president's attorney at the time, and is claiming attorney-client privilege so he doesn't have to hand over any of this stuff, they're saying, oh, no, 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 Judge. Uh, We have evidence that Donald Trump and his associates, including John Eastman, uh, may have illegally tried to obstruct Congress's count of electoral votes and, quote, engaged in criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States. That is a very serious crime, but it's not something the January 6th committee can come out with handcuffs and show up at Mar-a-Lago and, and send Donald Trump off to jail because they don't have the power to do that, nor does this court have the power to do anything. The only thing this court has the power to do is tell John Eastman, sorry, uh, yeah, they showed us evidence, it looks pretty bad, hand over the documents. 
of course, which he will then go to the Supreme Court and probably lose that battle, too, as Donald Trump has lost virtually every single battle to keep documents and, and other information or stop people from testifying. Uh, of course, uh, Joe Biden, the president, has uh, denied all these executive privilege uh, claims by Donald Trump because there is only one president at a time, and the president gets to decide who can have executive privilege and who doesn't. And, of course, courts can overrule that. So as bad as this sounds, when you say someone's engaged in a criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States, and that does sound pretty bad, I, Donald Trump isn't losing any sleep over this because the committee doesn't have any power to do anything about it. How unanimous was this committee? Did they come out with one voice, or did you have some dissent on the committee? I know there's two Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. You're not getting much dissent from Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger. They seem to be on board with all of this. They are the two rare Republicans in the House that are doing this, and of course they've both been ostracized from their own party. Uh, Liz Cheney's case excommunicated from her party back home so no, th- these are these are have been unanimous decisions as far as I can see, and in, in terms of these subpoena requests, they are all talking with the same voice. The only thing that could come out of this, and, and that is, if the committee decides to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department, saying, "Here's the evidence we have. We'll send it over in a truck, and you guys look at it and decide if you want to prosecute." Then it starts to get a little hairy for the president and John Eastman and others who may indeed have been involved in this conspiracy that they claim that seems to be even more uncharted territory because how many times has the justice department gone after a former president and and for that matter how many times has the justice department taken up recommendations from congress which by its nature is a political body Uh, this justice department just did that with steve bannon and uh, a grand jury in washington dc agreed with congress and steve bannon is now charged with criminal contempt of congress and he has to defend himself in court so that has happened at least once recently here in terms of past presidents i don't know that the actual justice department has ever indicted a a former president and certainly not on, on charges this serious i know ronald reagan had faced some civil proceedings where he had to testify after he was in office but i don't think that had anything to do with the justice department so what are we expecting to come from this anything we don't know the court these courts can take all the time they want to do these things although they have been moving fairly quickly if a judge says yes there's enough evidence to deny this attorney client privilege then that is basically a, a tacit admission by the court that donald trump may indeed have been involved in this but again there's you need a charge you need a federal charge a federal prosecutor to charge the president with doing something We're told that some of these investigations are ongoing inside the Justice Department, but a year after January 6th, they haven't brought any charges against the president. And it's not just the president, though. We're also seeing some of his associates, such as his children, Kimberly Guilfoyle, the uh, girlfriend of Donald Trump Jr., uh, also getting the ire of the committee. Yeah, this is, boy, it's certainly extending uh, the president's uh, daughter, Ivanka, Uh, we're told uh, is scheduled or may have already talked to the committee here and she's not claiming any executive privilege that we know of and nor do we know if she's going to plead the fifth in any of these cases but kimberly guilfoyle is uh, apparently the fiance of donald trump jr his son chairman thompson issued a statement saying mrs ms guilfoyle met with donald trump inside of the white house spoke at the rally 
took place before the riot on January 6th, apparently played a key role in organizing and raising money for the event. So the select committee wants information from her about all of these and other matters. Ms. Guilfoyle backed out of her original commitment to provide a voluntary interview, so they're issuing a subpoena to compel her to testify. If she ignores that, then she could face that same contempt, criminal contempt of Congress charge that Steve Bannon faces and uh, end up in court. And all of this has something of a ticking clock because... The midterms are coming up pretty quickly, and if the Republicans take the House, you can imagine that this committee is going to be dissolved. Well, it wouldn't be dissolved until January of 2023, because that's when the actual takeover of power, if indeed the Republicans win over control of the House and Senate. So they do have some time between now and then. But again, most of the stuff, if there's anything criminal to come out of it, would have to go through the Justice Department. And that Justice Department is going to be in place for at least another three years. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. When we come back, a U.S. senator suggests the overt assassination of a foreign head of state when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's Elisa Jaffe. A senior U.S. defense official says there is no reason to doubt Russia has control of a Ukrainian nuclear facility. Joining us on the Northwest Newsline is retired four-star general and military analyst Barry McCaffrey. Sir, I am reading that they don't think there's any radioactive leakage at the plant, but there are so many reasons to be concerned. What are Russia's intentions? And I heard that some people are working there with guns to their heads. Yeah, I think there's an awful lot of misinformation floating around on it. First of all, clearly, the 15 reactors in Ukraine and four major plants need to be declared by the Ukrainians as uh, not contested areas. You know, have the police outpost them 10 mile circumference, uh, tell the Russians, we, we aren't inside these zones. It's irresponsible of them to not do that. There was fighting directly in the vicinity of one of these uh, giant plants in the south. They did set a uh, building, a training building outside the reactor area on fire. These reactors are immensely safer than Chernobyl. They have a five-foot thick steel concrete reinforced cap. But obviously, there's still considerable danger, particularly from the spent rod cooling pools that have to be also have continuously circulated water. So it was a scare, an appropriate one. The Russians are clearly not holding guns to people's heads. I mean, for God's sake, they don't want a nuclear disaster in the land they're trying to conquer, nor would they want it to drift downrange all over Europe. So a little bit of misinformation there. The U.S. seems to be watching its language when it relates to this, when it talks about the nuclear power plant and not saying that that's a war crime or not saying that when it comes to cluster munitions, cluster bombs, NATO is saying that they're happening. Well, of course, the key is that, you know, in a city like Kiev of three million people, any munition that isn't precision and isn't targeted precisely on Ukrainian ground force opposition is could be considered a war crime. And those millions of people, many of them will never get out. So if it's a street-by-street street fight, there'll be thousands of civilian casualties killed or wounded. We are not a party to that treaty on cluster bomb units. Now, we have used them in combat. We still have them. I don't think we'll use them unless it was no civilians in the vicinity and you're attacking a infantry target. 
again, I think the problem isn't the kind of munition, but the horror of attacking heavily inhabited areas in cities, which the Russians are clearly doing with non-precision munitions. Russia is going to ban Facebook for what it says is ongoing discrimination against Russian media. This happens as Russian lawmakers passed a measure that makes the spread of quote-unquote fake information about the war in Ukraine a criminal offense. How at risk are journalists who are in Russia trying to cover this story right now? Well, a bunch of them are leaving. I'm astonished that Putin has not moved to throw all the international journalistic community out of Moscow. Some of them have gotten down on the border and reporting from the attack zone just inside Russia. He's got to try and control the misinformation, the big lie that buttresses his entire argument. He doesn't want them to see millions fleeing into Western Europe, devastating impact on inhabited areas, and a sense of astonishing sense of national unity. So I don't see how he's going to do it. It's pretty hard to completely control the flow of information nowadays, but he's giving it a shot. What do you think about teaching kids in school uh, the his version of what's happening? He has tight control over all the levers of power in Russia. It's a terribly unfortunate situation. By the way, there still are an unknown number, but a substantial numbers of Russians who are outraged by his criminal attack on Ukraine and who increasingly will be appalled at the Russian casualties coming home to the village with the son killed or badly injured. I don't see how he can keep this up. Most of his public optics on the war are so clearly false, they won't withstand scrutiny for long. But he's he's trying it. And, you know, the threat in Russia, these arrested 7,000 some odd civilians, Many of them get beaten brutally and may end up behind bars for a considerable period of time. So courageous Russians are stepping forward to protest this war. Do you think there is a a concern for the private sector here when it comes to ransomware or cyber attacks on the part of Russia right now? Well, there should be. Uh, We have sustained several uh, significant attacks by the Iranians, by the North Koreans, Uh, and indeed on occasion by uh, so-called private entities inside Russia that we think are acting on behalf of the Russian state. And if they went to all-out cyber war against the U.S. uh, or Western Europe, it would cause considerable harm. Having said that, uh, the U.S. and U.K. together, in my estimation, control 90% of the international community's offensive cyber capability. So Putin has been and should be very wary about opening up that can of worms. The the response from the U.S., which may be ongoing now, for all I know, could be devastating. But primarily the, the great powers have done mostly cyber espionage and have Uh, tried to get into uh, opposing systems, the Pentagon, dam control, metro control, and plant uh, malware in them to be used in the the event of of all-out struggle. Forgive my ignorance, but why doesn't someone take Putin out? Well, first of all, he is frightfully aware of his own danger in that society. I mean, uh, he's living primarily not in Moscow, but on the immense grounds of his DACA, he has an intensely loyal and sophisticated personal protection 
cadre around him at all times. I mean, these photos are coming out, videos of him meeting with his minister of defense and the chief of general staff, and they're 30 feet away at the end of a table. It's the most embarrassing photo imaginable. And back in the rear, you can see two security agents standing guard with folded hands. You know, the implication being he can't meet with his own two senior generals without fear of loss of security. So I don't think it's likely that Putin will ever be assassinated. Of course, it's a violation of U.S. law to assassinate a head of state. We're not going to get involved in that, and we shouldn't ever be talking about it in public as something we'd support. Do you think this is going to drag out? What was the end game? Mr. Putin has already lost the war in a strategic sense. The country's isolated under tremendous economic constraints. It's widely loathed as a cruel uh, attacking power of a sovereign nation. Uh, he has brought down the, um, the, the wrath of the international community in, in hundreds of ways. I mean, from barring Russian philharmonic conductors from being in the West to telling Putin you're no longer the emeritus uh, president of the International Jiu-Jitsu Society. So he, he has damaged Russia's national security, economic uh, c capacity, and its political standing immeasurably, and it's going to get worse. So where this ends, and, and each day the attack continues in Ukraine, um, it's going to get worse for him. He's going to end up holding, in my judgment, eventually an impoverished, badly damaged country that he will not be able to successfully administer, a country that loathes the Russian presence and will continue passive resistance at best and armed uh, guerrilla insurgency at worst. Retired four-star general Barry McCaffrey of Seattle. Thank you so much, sir. Good to be with you. Still to come, the coming insurgency in Ukraine as an occupied population fights back when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Once again, Elisa Jaffe. Russia is escalating its invasion of Ukraine as much of the world is condemning Russian President Vladimir Putin's every move, wondering if he's even got the ability to negotiate a peaceful exit. Joining us on the Northwest Newsline is Douglas London, a retired Russian-speaking CIA operations officer, an expert on weapons of mass destruction and counterterrorism, who's recently written a book called The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Good to have you with us, sir. You served in Central Asia, managed counterinsurgency operations. What is surprising you about President Putin's invasion and how Ukrainian troops and the people are handling these attacks? I think one of the big questions is going to be his endgame. What is his endgame? We're all anticipating that he expected to come in there fairly easily, uh, take over the government, install a Russian puppet, but then at least that would leave him with occupying a hostile country and facing a possible insurgency. So at this point, as we look to how he's going to get out of there and achieve his aims, still is a question for debate. Putin pushing through to take over Kiev. What can we expect from him? What kind of insurgency do you predict? Are his troops even prepared for it? Because it seems like it's different when these people are fighting for everything they believe in versus being a member of Russia's forces because that's their job. Good points all. Ukraine has had at least the last eight years to prepare for insurgency. They've certainly been trained by the U.S. military and most likely my former organization, the CIA, based on what I know personally and have seen depicted in the press. They've been planning how to organize, how to cache weapons, how to move and how to target 
Russian troops. The Russian troops have not exactly acquitted themselves particularly well based on just what we've seen in the first few days, suffering variously from morale issues, logistical problems, not even getting fed, it would seem, according to press reports. So I don't think that the Russian troops are well prepared to deal with a long, bloody insurgency that will certainly further sap their morale and likewise impact their families back at home. Ukrainian President Zelensky's in a bunker putting out these amazing social media messages and says he's Putin's number one target and his family is the second target. Does Putin really want to take him out or would that even further unite the people of Ukraine and make this war tougher to win and drag out even longer? It's it's hard to imagine what the calculus is that uh, Putin's been making his decisions on because certainly He's facing, as you said yourself, a much more unified opposition. He's really brought the country together. He's not had the success with what he thought would be in the traditional Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine, who see themselves first and foremost as Ukrainians. Whether he manages to have uh, Zelensky die in some catastrophic bombing as opposed to an execution, it's, it's hard to say. But either way, he has done more to unify the Ukrainians than probably President Zelensky is since he's taken office. You spent more than 30 years with the CIA. Putin spent a lot of time with the KGB. Is the intelligence community right now evaluating his state of mind? And might his behavior change if he's angered by this sense that Ukrainian forces won't give up and give in and that the world is all against him? I see a great deal of discussion about his state of mind. And is he rational or reckless? My assessment of the situation is he's just getting bad intelligence. Putin is an intelligence officer. He deals in a world where he always wants to have control, where he can predict and actually manipulate the outcome. So I find it difficult to believe that he's been making these decisions based emotionally, but rather on poor intelligence, which really isn't surprising if we've seen that tape of his national security meeting. Who's going to tell him the truth? Who's going to tell him that the Ukrainians are going to put up a stiff resistance and that the West is going to unify with punishing sanctions. Nobody in his circle that I could speak for. Thank you so much. Douglas London, retired CIA officer and author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Good talking with you, sir. Thank you very much. Still to come, a statewide elected leader accused of inappropriate conduct when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, several former and current employees in the office of the state insurance commissioner are accusing Commissioner Mike Kreidler of creating a hostile and demeaning work environment. Carlene Johnson spoke with one former employee and has reaction from the commissioner's office. Kreidler's led the office of the insurance commissioner for more than two decades, known to be a tough consumer advocate taking on the insurance industry. But in recent months, several employees have spoken out about Kreidler's growing volatility and mistreatment of staff. The deputies that were there right before I left, by about 14 months later, every single one had turned over. That is Lonnie Johns-Brown. She served as legislative director in the office until June 2020. She tells Northwest News Radio, Kreidler never offended her, but she saw other staffers belittled and berated. It was a day-long belittling and um, demeaning remarks in front of other staffers had really just reached such a pitch that there was an incident that was particularly bad that caused that person to submit their 
resignation. A formal HR investigation is underway. Now, Kreidler declined my interview request, but did said a statement that reads in part, I care about everyone who works with me at the office of the insurance commissioner. I deeply regret that some of my behavior and actions have taken away from the good work we do. Northwest News Network spoke to more than a dozen current and former employees to break this story. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Governor Jay Inslee has signed several bills, including two Ryan Harris says are aimed at cleaning up what majority Democrats acknowledge were mistakes from last year's police reform package. Those bills include one that will again allow officers to use reasonable force to take someone in who needs treatment for a mental health crisis. The other fixes what the governor describes as inadvertently preventing police from using beanbag guns and other less lethal weapons when needed to protect public safety. Inslee was asked what he would say to families of people killed by police who wanted none of those changes and he says they listened to those families but that some of the language unintentionally impeded some legitimate police actions we have refined and the legislature has refined in a quite i think sophisticated manner in those places where they did not intend to actually intrude on the ability to have officers act for safety the governor also says he'd like to see the bill passed that would again allow police to detain people for investigation known as a terry stop when they get to a chaotic situation and need to keep all involved safe. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. To Seattle, Mayor Bruce Harrell says the city is making progress cleaning up crime downtown. We've seen early improvement at 12th and Jackson, but clearly there's so much work to do. Our efforts are nowhere complete. He says Seattle police have taken down an open-air drug market that was operating in the area. Now the next area of focus, 3rd and Pine, where shootings, drug deals, and other problems have led to businesses closing their doors. Finally, the Seattle Police Officers Guild has picked its candidate for King County Prosecutor. Longtime prosecutor Dan Satterberg has already announced he will not seek re-election this fall. So for the first time in essentially decades, it will be an open seat. Now, the union representing Seattle Police has issued their endorsement. President Mike Solon. Law enforcement within Seattle and King County are united in support of Jim Farrell. Farrell was just elected to another term as mayor of Federal Way, but says he is the right person to change the direction of the King County Prosecutor's Office. Now, three other candidates have filed with the State Public Disclosure Commission. Of them, Farrell has raised the most money. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other programs, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and many more. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.